When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Drew Fortune, the author of No Encore. Musicians revealed their weirdest, wildest, most embarrassing gigs. Welcome, Drew. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. Definitely. First off, congratulations on writing the music book anyone would want to read. And everyone would have loved to have written. How did you come up with this concept? Well, hey, man, I'm not seeing that in the residuals. <laughs> Where are all these people? No, I'm kidding. I guess I write about it in the, in the introduction. My first concert was the Rolling Stones in Houston, Texas, at a motor speedway in July on a, like a sweltering hot day. Smashing Pumpkins and Matchbox 20 were opening for them. Nobody knew who the hell Matchbox 20 were. And they were just about to blow up big about two months later. So they had attitude to spare. And I learned that Rolling Stones fans are terrible to the any opener. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but that's like a tradition. Especially in Texas when everyone's all liquored up and hot and didn't want to sit through two openers. So they threw everything at them. Beer, popcorn, hot dogs. Like all this was raining down on my 14-year-old head. And I'm thinking, this is, I love this. And Rob Thomas, you know, raised the middle finger. He's like, you know, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. And I just thought that was so cool. And I mean, I've seen a million shows, but that moment just stands out. So I always had that in the back of my head. I should, I always wanted to capture the best and the worst gigs. That was going to be the initial idea. That's funny because I had a very similar experience to yours and it wasn't my first show, but it was down in Florida where I grew up and it was The Who on the first tour after Keith Moon had died. So The Who Are You tour, which had opening the B-52s who maybe lasted three minutes on stage and Joan Jett, who when she sang, do you want to touch the entire crowd yelled back? No. And wow. It was just weird. I, I, I kind of give it to it because I think Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon was playing when the B-52s came on. So they, they stopped that. And I, everybody just reacted. And it's like, you guys, you all got this record in your home. You know, why not listen to this new band? It was weird. Is that a thing with like classic rock bands that the openers were just shit upon unmercifully? I think so. <laughs> okay. So, you, you know, you mentioned this and you write in your introduction that the book started out quite differently, including not only the artist's worst moments on stage, but also you wanted to include their best, but those stories proved not as interesting. 
Well, I still love the title that I was going to use, Rain or Shine, and it was going to be a ticket stub. Yeah, Rain or Shine, it was going to be the best and the worst. I tried that for a minute. Some of my first interviews were Dean Ween from the band Ween. He gave me a straight bad one. And then my friend Scott Hutchison from Frightened Rabbit, who is no longer with us, he took his own life. We did the same thing. We did best and worst. And best was, oh, you know, my brother was there. It was a really special night. You know, I had just gotten engaged. My wife was there. They were very sweet. It's not something that was lighting anything on fire. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I mean, I wanted these to be like the worst of behind the music VH1 moments. Again, because I grew up on that show and that was a big inspiration to me with this. So yeah, I mean, I tried to play the sweet thing for a while. <laughs> I couldn't get any anything spectacular with that. So I dropped it. And once I focused on the worst, it, it just rolled very, very easily. I do love the concept, Rain or Shine, especially with the graphic you mentioned. So maybe maybe you can recycle that someday. Yeah, a documentary or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I found interesting is the incredibly wide array of musicians and music genres in your book. And they all had really bad tales to tell. Yeah. I guess nobody's safe is, is the point. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone gets away scot-free in the music business. I really wanted to get weird with it. I was going to reach out to Yo-Yo Ma, Kenny G, but he was actually in the midst of a documentary being made about him, which is really good. It was on that HBO series. Like Tony Bennett, I, I wanted to see how some of the old school Frank Sinatra people rolled, if there were any bad gigs back then. I definitely didn't want to do, although it ended up being a lot of my personal favorite bands. Basically, my whole thing was, let's tell the stories that maybe haven't been told you know, in prior books or uh, behind the music, which was kind of the gold standard for rock and roll disarray for a while. I reached out all across the board. I mean, oh, I, I didn't stop at all. I tried everybody, Madonna, Bono. Yeah, I mean, Calamity just seems to follow music in, in all its genres and all its different forms. You know, one of the great things about your book is that all of the stories are told by the artist in the first person. And I, I find it much more personal and, and really effective. Was, was there a standard question you asked and then you just let them roll? And, and since it was in the first person, I'm curious how it was asked and responded to. Was it mostly email or voice messaging or how did that work? Yeah, it, 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 I basically had a standard email that I would send to publicists or managers. I left it all in the artist's hands, essentially. I said, you know, top three weirdest wildest gigs uh maybe one to fall back on if we run up a little short the response was pretty good i mean a lot of it you know i've been in this game uh the music journalism game for about 19 years so i definitely had to rely on some friends to uh come through for me in terms of interviews yeah i mean there were some some that i didn't ever anticipate happening like dan Aykroyd. Mm -hmm. i wanted to talk to him about the blues brothers so this was a funny one. All, all the interviews were uh, phoners. I, I was living in South Carolina. Aykroyd's thing was so weird. I never got to deal with him personally. And it was all his publicist saying, or his manager, just saying, uh, I doubt Danny's going to be interested, but I'll forward it on to him. Uh, so that, I didn't even think about it for about two months. And then all of a sudden, she emailed me saying, I can't believe he did this. And just a whole story from Aykroyd, but... I think he, he either didn't understand what I was asking for or didn't want to talk about a Blues Brothers story. So he told a story from his youth growing up in Canada about the animals playing a gig. A bunch of his friends, they were at, I think, a Catholic school, snuck out and they got all liquored up. 
and someone didn't, I think the venue owner didn't pay Eric Burden or the band. So the band never came out and basically all his Canadian schoolboy friends rioted. And I guess almost burned that place down. He's like, I'm not going to say I didn't throw a flaming phone book, but <laughs> it was fun. So I kept it, but damn, I would have loved to hear some Blues Brothers stories. Yeah. And it's interesting because most of these stories are fairly short, but I love the little introductions that you wrote for each one. It's only a, a couple of sentences in most cases, but it sets them up in a really cool way. How did you come up with that idea? You know, I thought about going longer with those. It's going to give a more detailed history of the bands. In hindsight, a lot of the reviews say their major gripe is, oh, I've never even heard of half the bands. I mean, I wrote this book with music heads in mind, you know. I wasn't just trying to go pop and mainstream because those artists are so well groomed and prepped that hardly anything ever goes wrong, except for like a wardrobe malfunction <laughs> in the Super Bowl, you know? So yeah, that's where a lot of it came to sort of the indie rock bands and bands that I grew up with, like Ween and Guided by Voices and, and things like that. Well, my, my favorite one, and I won't give it away. So listeners, you'll have to go pick up Drew's book for this one, but as an example your introduction for Shirley Manson of Garbage, you mentioned how you were so taken with her Scottish pronunciation of poo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, she was great. That, that was one I was really happy to get because I, I definitely tried to get a lot more females in the book than ended up being in the book. Oh, one regret I have, and this is a technical malfunction, was a great interview I had with Nancy Wilson of Heart. But I had a computer die and I lost like eight interviews, sadly. And she was one of those. But her story was really funny. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was, but it was basically guys would rush the stage, try and fondle her a lot. And she, she physically fought them off wow. via a swinging guitar, <laughs> a sharp kick to the groin, whatever she had to do. But I'm like, damn, you really had to put some muscle into keeping these guys away. I thought that was pretty punk rock and pretty badass. Definitely. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
We're speaking with Drew Fortune, who's the author of No Encore, Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs. Let's talk about a couple of the stories that are in your book, and, and we'll leave the rest for readers to discover themselves. And I have to start with the very, very first one. As you say, this book wouldn't exist without Alice Cooper. And the proof of that is on stage with decapitations, cannon shots, and a python with IBS. I mean, does it get any better than that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alice was, you know, one of the people who I really wanted from the beginning. Wasn't sure I'd get him. I mean, he's pretty damn busy uh, with his radio show and touring and all that stuff. But so, yeah, but I ended up getting him. Again, I, I didn't say, hey, Alice, tell me about this story or the chicken incident where, I don't know, people threw a chicken on stage and he tried to throw it back and they basically tore it to shreds because right. he thought it could fly. Like, everyone's <laughs> kind of heard that. So when he brought out the Python story, he's like, I really haven't told this uh, to many people or at least the press. It was in the late 80s and it was some sort of Alice Cooper's Carnival type theme tour. And, you know, this was before Wayne's World came out in 92 and kind of gave his career a little B12 shot, you know? <laughs> so he's like, yeah, it was at uh, the Hollywood Bowl, I believe. And it was a really big show for him. It was kind of like, I was his back, you know? So anyway, uh, all his roadies were dressed up as like psychotic clowns. That was the gist, or that was kind of the uh, the theme. And uh, so Alice has uh, a 19-foot reticulated python that he tours with. And whenever he brings it out, in the show it's it's usually a very dark moment a very ominous moment but he said all of a sudden i was getting crazy laughs from like the first few rows and he couldn't understand it until the smell hit him <laughs> yeah he he said you know we feed this thing dead rats so that's that's weeks of nastiness digestive stuff going on and he, he said it smelled like death worse than <laughs> death so he got violently ill started retching hid behind some amps and, you know, threw up and someone took the python. But anyway, so the, uh, the psychotic clown roadies rushed out to clean up the poo and the vomit. And they started getting physically ill and throwing up on the vomit and the poo. So it was just, a yeah, a, a situation that just got worse and worse. But after the show, and this is all in the book too, Johnny Rotten was there and he's from, you know, Sex Pistols. And he said to Alice best bit of theater i've ever seen <laughs> so alice is like yep we do it every night oh wow i can poke the snake in a certain place and he unleashes his bowels and that's what we do <laughs> wow wow it's funny i told a friend of mine that story last night and now he wants to read your book but nice he asked me he goes well have you ever smelled snake poo and i just looked at him and i was like <laughs> no no i haven't and so he'll back up that story okay nice. <laughs> You know, obviously drugs and bad decisions on drugs play a big part in some of these stories. But one of my favorites is is a bit on the lighter side. And that's one with Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo in New York City for their very first tour. And he ends up at Studio 54. Oh, yeah. This was one where Mark kind of took a left field approach. He said, you know, I don't have necessarily a totally bad gig uh, story to tell, but I'll tell you a funny drug story. So this was probably about 1977. He went on a double date with Andy Warhol, Michael Jackson, and the woman who asked him out was sort of this B-level starlet um, slash softcore actress who was on the Z Network, I think it was, which was a 70s kind of off-cable type weird show. So anyway, that was his date. So he walked in and he's super nervous. He's from Ohio, you know, self-proclaimed kind of geek. So they go into the VIP area. Warhol breaks out a joint. 
he's sitting next to Jackson. Jackson just looks at it, passes it to Mark, and Mark, not wanting to look like a square, hits it really hard, really deep, repeatedly. And Andy's kind of staring at Mark like, okay, this is interesting. And about 20 minutes later, Mark State grabs his hand, you know, come on, come on, let's, let's hit the dance floor. So he approaches it, and he's already starting to have bad hallucinations um and he, he like he i don't know how the dance floor was lit but obviously there was a lot of crazy lights and the whole thing was very scattered especially when you're starting to violently uh, hallucinate so he doesn't go on the dance floor he steps to the edge of it and all of a sudden he says there's a disco ball a big disco ball that just was um rotating over everyone's heads and it started getting lower and lower until it started smacking people in their heads and bashing their skulls open. He said blood was flying everywhere. He couldn't speak. He tried to warn, you know, his date, like, please come back. This is a massacre. <laughs> so she, she approaches him. He's, you know, just frozen on the edge of the dance floor. She's like, are you okay? He's like, oh my God, like, what, you know, what was just happening? So she brings him back to the VIP area and she says to Andy, like, did you, did you give him that joint? And, she, you know, Warhol's like, oh, yeah, I did. What what happened? <laughs> you know, she's like, oh, God, Andy. You know, before Warhol basically just says to Mark, like, you smoked the angel dust. How interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, she brought him home. She brought Mark home right away. And he basically said, I fried in this cheap motel room for about six hours. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you don't do a lot of things on that checklist. Well, another one that I thought was really funny, and I think you mentioned he was a really funny interview, is Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. But yeah. boy, he had a couple of tough nights on stage. Yeah, his were just really gross, but the way he told them were very funny. And I don't know if I have a very dark sense of humor, but I find a lot of this just hysterical. And I don't know if this is too gross for a mass audience, but... So anyway, I think he was at Shea Stadium, and he was going to do the national anthem, he was on stage with an open shirt and he said something wet smacked him in the chest, but he didn't think about it or look down immediately. And of course, some woman had whipped a bloody tampon at him and it stuck right in his chest. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. You know, it, it's interesting because a lot of the, the bands talk about, you know, opening slots and, and how the audience is ready to sink their teeth into anyone who's not a headliner. A lot of them came off with violence. But I found it funny also how a lot of the people in your book, they, they can't just seem to tell one bad gig. It seems once they start, that door is open and then they'll just keep spilling. Yeah, I mean, that's when I knew I was on the right track when I stopped doing the best stories because, yeah, I mean, they flow with the bad stories. One would lead into another. Then again, that's why I didn't specify, like, tell me this specific story when I pitched the interview to them. I just left it open. And they would all of a sudden be like, oh, my God, let me tell you this one. I forgot about this. And, yeah, bands love telling the bad stories, man. Anyone out there, next time you talk to a musician, just ask about their worst night and they'll entertain hell. Yeah, definitely. And, then, you know, there's a lot of violence. I know the D. Snyder one is pretty well known, but Lita Ford, I mean, you don't mess with Lita, as, as Poison will certainly tell you. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. So Lita was uh, on tour with Poison sometime in the mid-'80s. She said, well, I never really stuck around to party with them. I think she was kind of entering sobriety or working on her own sobriety. So she kind of distanced herself from them. But the last night of the tour, I guess that's the big prank night. I assume it is for tons of bands. You're going to prank your opener. So 
the, uh, I guess Poison had literally tied her guitar tech to a chair. <laughs> he, so he wasn't available to help on stage. And then what they did was they somehow got him in the rafters and then lowered him down like uh, Stonehenge and Spinal Tap as he's stuck to the chair. And she's like, that wasn't funny. That just pissed me off. Oh, yeah. And then they brought out two male strippers during her set who were kind of rubbing up on her. And she's like, that wasn't funny either. She's like, I was heated when my set was over. And I guess she went backstage and just demolished all their gear, kicked over everything, kicked guitars, you know. So you do not mess with Lita yeah. at all. Turnabout might be fair play, but it probably gets expensive too. So Right, yeah. You know, we, we talked about this uh, a little bit, but I just want to also give, you know, our listeners the breadth and width of, of what you put in this book. Uh, every genre is in there. And we expect heavy metal or punk, but you've got Big Daddy Kane and Wycliffe Gene. You got Kenny Loggins and Moby all telling horror stories of various degrees. This is kind of a yes or no question, but you can give a name if you want. But were there any stories that were just too raunchy to print? Um, no, <laughs> I, no, there was there wasn't. I mean, that's why I didn't do a lot of hair metal bands. A, I've heard those before. B, those are kind of littered with um, sexual assault or groupies or, you know, just shit that isn't cool nowadays. Not that it ever was, but we're not celebrating bad behavior like we did in the 80s. So I didn't want I didn't want any of those stories. I didn't ask for them. Bands didn't really give them up. So that wasn't an issue, but everything else was pretty much fair game. And the only things that got cut, you know, honestly, just weren't that interesting. You know, everyone who offered to do an interview with me, I thank them still to this day. Thank you for doing it. But yeah, so for, for whatever reason, the ones that didn't work just didn't work. You're not really missing anything, I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I would like to reiterate that there's there's definitely some humor behind a lot of these stories when the people are telling them. You know, some of them go south pretty badly, but, you know, I think people telling them realize what it was and what they may have learned from that and what, what maybe they didn't learn from that. Yeah, I was going to say that was a big thing, too. I didn't want straight doom and gloom. I wanted some sort of light or some lesson learned at the end. That was, again, I didn't want to just marinate in drugs and debauchery. A, that would get boring. So, yeah, I mean, again, most of the artists I reached out to were either are sober today, um, their bands are doing well. I didn't want to just focus on something that burned bright and flamed out really quick and the bands are still bitter about it or, or you know, something like that. I found it a lot of fun to read. We've been speaking with Drew Fortune, who wrote the book No Encore, Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs. So I'm guessing from what you just said, we probably won't get another book on this. So let me let me ask you what's next for you. I know that you're a big music writer. I read some recent pieces on some online stuff when I did some research that were really, really good. What's out there that, that people can look for you? Well, you know, I would love to do a sequel. And I get people asking me about it. People aren't reading much anymore, man. It sucks. Like, I thought this book and all the genres that I crossed, it would just be immediately appealing to everyone's fan base, you know? Like, Debbie Gibson's in the book, and she has a huge fan base. And I just thought her fans would just pick this up immediately. Didn't work out like that. I think a sequel would be fun. I actually uh, was working with Jeff Fuerzig, who directed Devil and Daniel Johnston. He's a documentarian. So we pitched this as sort of a Tales from the Tour Bus offshoot so it'd be animated anyway uh we pitched netflix and a hulu and it just no one went for it 
A, it's just really expensive to animate and do all that. Yeah, I actually uh, took a job in cannabis in May and moved from South Carolina to Flint, Michigan. So yeah, I'm a marketing manager of a fully integrated cannabis facility called Light Sky Farms. So I've moved into that, sort of taken journalism on a back burner at this point. But yeah, you know, I'm still doing stuff. Like I've been doing a series for Vulture called Wakes, where when someone passes, I get intimate stories from their friends, family, and things like that. I did one for MF Doom. Well, anyway, you can you can Google me and see him. Um, John Prine, I did one. So those are still kind of fun, and I'll uh, I'll pop in and do those. But uh, the uh, music journalism industry, entertainment journalism, it just I I think I got out really at the best time. I see it both ways, you know. With this yeah. podcast grew out of you know a written section on our All Music Books website where I'd ask authors these questions and they'd respond much like they did with your book. It started out well, but I think you're right. People are starting to read less, even if it's online. Or less long form, you know? Yes. Yes. Which is why we've also started trying to do a little bit shorter podcasts. So Mm. I know, man. But, but, you know, I mean, we're still keeping up on the the book side there. I think there is a very loyal following. So I'm going to ask our readers to go and find your book because it's a ton of fun to read. And I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.